Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Now we read the following. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. Boys and girls, I suspect those of you who are old enough to ride a bicycle, you know of what I speak here. Even if you haven't yet learned to ride a bicycle, maybe you have a tricycle. And you know that unless you keep pedaling, what's going to happen? Well, unless you're going down a big hill, you're going to lose momentum. And when you lose momentum... After a while, you can only lose so much momentum, and then you're going to lose your balance. That is, pedaling is what keeps the wheels turning. Pedaling is what keeps the bike moving. Pedaling is what keeps you on balance and on plane as you ride the bicycle. I don't think I understood when we started this series on Hebrews how much the book of Hebrews is really about pedaling. It's really, when you look at a lot of these chapters that have already been covered, this book is really about pedaling in the Christian life so that we keep going and that we don't stall out and fall over to one side or the other. Or to put it theologically, what the book of Hebrews emphasizes is that of the doctrine of perseverance. We have to keep going. We have to persevere by the grace of God. Now, for the last few weeks, we were exhorted by the author of Hebrews and warned against unbelief. He used the illustration of the children in the wilderness who had the gospel preached to them in types and shadows, to be sure, but nevertheless, it was a gospel of grace through faith in God to deliver them out of Egypt and into the promised land. But the problem is, as we know, both from the stories of the Old Testament, but also the applications of it in the New, is that the people of God faltered by and large. In fact, an entire generation did not make it into the promised land, with the exception of a handful, few, because of unbelief. They didn't trust the scriptures. They didn't trust the word of God, and they faltered in their faith. And they did not enter into the promised land. They died in the wilderness as a judgment that God brought upon them for their unbelief. And what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that even as they had the word, but the word did not profit them unto perseverance, you and I need to take warning. You and I need to be careful how we hear and what we hear so that we would believe that which is preached. God is serious about his word. And last week, you remember, young people and teenagers, how God compared that word to a weapon. Uh, And he called it a two-edged sword. 
Or if you prefer a more domestic illustration, he compared it to a knife. And what do you do? You have to be careful with the knives in the kitchen, right? Mom and dad don't want you accidentally cutting yourself with a knife, even though you may be trying to be helpful in the kitchen. The same way, the Bible, the word, is sharp. And it pierces not the body so much, but pierces even to the soul, to the joints, to the marrow. That is the inner parts of man, dividing soul and spirit. Uh, It is powerful. And this is how God builds his church, through the weapon, if you will, of the sword of the spirit. He conquers, we are told in the book of Revelation, Jesus is a conquering king who rides a great white horse. And the picture of Christ is of what coming out of his mouth? A two-edged sword. It's, it's a picture. We have to remember, Revelation is a picture book. And it is, a, it is telling us theological truths in a very symbolic, figurative manner. So, boys and girls, Jesus does not have a literal sword coming out of his mouth. But it is a a wonderful picture, though, of the power of Christ's word. And that Christ's word conquers. Christ's word goes out. Christ's word defeats God's enemies. And you and I once were his enemies until we were subdued by the gracious sword of Jesus Christ. We were brought to heal of our own waywardness and sinfulness, and we were brought under the subjection, the gracious subjection of Jesus Christ by that sword. And that sword's going out today. This morning I got up early, and one of the things I prayed this morning was that that Jesus Christ would have success all through the world. You know, when we got up this morning, and it was still dark, still dark for some of us in the morning, (laughs) But, uh, you know, I I thought how much of the Lord's Day was already half over for most of the world. You know, we live in the West, so we're the last to experience the Lord's Day. But even then, I prayed, Lord, that you would bless the sword of the Spirit, that God and Jesus Christ, the Son, would would conquer all over millions of people, uh, all over from different tribes and tongues. Now, uh, today's outline is a threefold outline here from verses 14 through 16. Remember that the theme here is to persevere. And so the author of Hebrews would have us remember three things this morning. Number one, we should persevere because number one, we have a great high priest. We have a great high priest. Number two, This high priest is sympathetic to you. This high priest is sympathetic to you. And number three, therefore, because you have a great high priest and he is sympathetic towards you, number three, the exhortation, you need to draw near to him for grace. That is, we persevere by drawing close to Jesus Christ by faith in him. So one, you have a great high priest. That comes from verse 14. Number two, this high priest is sympathetic. That's from verse 15. And then finally from verse 16, you and I must draw near to him for the grace that we have need of to keep pedaling. So let's look at those three points together. Look in your Bible at verse 14. This is where our first point 
is coming from. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, notice the emphasis there, that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let's just break that down for a moment here. First of all, I want you to notice with me the words that you have a great high priest. Now, this would have meant much to the original audience, maybe even more so than it does to us, because we believe that much of the original audience of this letter were Jews. And therefore, they would have been familiar with the importance and the role and the office of the high priest who existed from Aaron on down, Aaron to Eleazar to others. Uh, Even before that, we're going to see later, the author of Hebrews is going to make the case for another great high priest named Melchizedek, even back in the days of Abraham, uh, before the time of Moses. But the office of priest was important because the office of priest signified the coming of Jesus Christ. It It was a ministry, it was an office in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, that in some ways pictured some of the work that Jesus would do for us. Now, what is the work that the priest would do? Well, the priests ordinarily would involve themselves in the sacrifices. And this, of course, you could see that this is, points to the substitutionary nature of Jesus' ministry to you and me. Jesus substitutes himself uh, in our place. And so these animals that the priests would offer were pictures of that substitutionary nature. The priest would put his hands on the head of the animal. Usually the neck, the jugular vein would be uh, uh, sliced and the blood of the animal would be poured out on the base of the altar. Some of it they would collect in little bowls and the priest would go around. He would take some of the blood and he'd go around the altar, big altar, square altar. And he would put blood on each corner it had a horn on it, and he would put blood on the horns. And depending on the type of sacrifice it was, they would prepare it in a certain way, and then they would offer it up onto the burning pyre. And there it would be consumed by the fire, and it would come up as a fragrant aroma before the Lord. This was a picture of what Jesus, the Lamb of God, would do on the cross, that Jesus Christ would take the place of all those animals. This is why we go to church, but we don't slaughter any animals today, thankfully. That Jesus Christ, once and forever, has come in order to offer himself as a propitiation. That's a word that's used four times in the New Testament. What does that word propitiation mean? It means to satisfy divine justice and wrath. So that that, that the high priest was offering sacrifices to make atonement for the sins of themselves and of the people of Israel in order that divine judgment would be satisfied. Now, you and I know that God's wrath could not really be satisfied by the death of an animal in the place of human sin, right? And so these were all, but but until the time of Christ, this was sufficient This was the means that God had appointed until the further Reformation came in the days of Jesus Christ. It was because these animals pointed to Christ that God was willing to accept an animal sacrifice. Okay, You have to remember, the 
Why, why would God even command such a thing if it, if it proves impotent about atoning for real sin or propitiating real wrath and judgment? Well, because it was accepted in Christ. It was offered as a prefigure of Christ and what Jesus would do. And therefore, it was acceptable to God. But not only would the high priest offer these sacrifices to propitiate the judgment and the wrath of God, but also to expiate. There's another theological word you need to know. Propitiate, satisfy divine judgment. Expiate means the removal of guilt. So that the, the atoning work that the priest would offer was to satisfy justice, and to remove then the guilt. And so for an example, you remember the, the, uh, where they would take two goats and they would offer one up on the altar and they would drive the other one. Where we get the word scapegoat. You ever wonder where in English, why do we call it a scapegoat? It comes from this, because they would drive that goat out into the wilderness, get it away from the people of God. It was a symbol of the the sins that have been transferred. One goat dies for it. The other is driven away from the people of God into the wilderness here. All of this uh, would be the work of the priests. And then, of course, the priests also would provide uh, various other functions at the temple. For example, they kept the lamps filled with oil. And there was a, a, a great lamp in the holy place, boys and girls. And, and, and only the priest could go in there. The high priest would go into this place. It was just outside the, the giant curtain. Okay, remember that you have the holy place, and then behind that great curtain, you have the holy of holies. So in the holy place, you would have this lamp. And the book of Revelation tells us the significance of that lamp. It pointed to the ministry of the Spirit of God who illuminates. And the, they had to keep that uh, going. It was to be perpetual. And next to the lamp would be the table with the showbread. And the priest would put the showbread out week by week. And then after the week, they would take it off and put new bread in its place. They offered incense on the altar of incense just outside the Holy of Holies. Uh, That was the work of the priest symbolizing the prayers of God's people. Uh, You you remember when um, Zacchaeus... Oh, excuse me, Zacharias comes in to perform that priestly function. What's he doing? You know, he's, he's offering incense, isn't he? When the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, you know, Zacharias, I've heard your prayers. What are the people of God doing outside? They are offering prayers and they're getting worried because Zacharias isn't coming out, you know, and, and he's offering the incense there. And then, of course, you had the Holy of Holies. One time a year, the high priest would go into the very holiest of rooms. That room, went. they went into that only one time a year, and they only went in there with blood. And the high priest would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the throne of God that was there. The Ark of the Covenant was there, and the priest would do that. Now, why do we go into all this detail about this? Well, <coughs> because the author of Hebrews here is saying what? Again, verse 14, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. What the author of Hebrews is saying is now that Jesus has given up his life on the cross and remember, as soon as he cried out, it is finished and his soul departed his body. What happened miraculously? 
the curtain that separated the holy room from the holy of holies was rent or split in two from the top down to the bottom, signifying it was a work of God. God did this miraculously. What the author of Hebrews is saying is, we have a high priest in Jesus. And Jesus has not just gone into a copy or a replica of the holy place. Remember, Solomon's temple, Herod's second temple, was a mere copy of the reality of heaven. Remember, God said to Moses, be careful that you do everything I instruct you to do. Do it in all the dimensions I tell you to do it in because this is a picture of my room in heaven. This is a picture of my throne room. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus, the high priest, has gone into the inner curtain in glory. And he has presented himself as the one who has been sacrificed for the sins of his people, the one who has propitiated God's wrath and has taken away our guilt and our sins. And is he, he has come into the very presence of God, not just in a typological little room in Jerusalem, in a man-made human building, but rather into glory itself, into the throne room of God itself. And Jesus comes and he says, Father, I have done all that you have said. I have, I have died the, the, the cursed death on the cross. <clears throat> and I have suffered for the sins of my people. And now I present myself alive to you as a great high priest. And what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that now that Jesus has done this, what? Hold fast your confession. Don't stop peddling down here now that your high priest has finished his work. Now that Jesus has gone into the presence of the Father, he's gone into the very holy of holies in glory, don't stop peddling your bike now. If they quit peddling in the days of Moses while they were in the wilderness, that was bad enough. But now that God has sent the high priest and he's finished his work and he's gone back to the Father, he, everything has been done for you. God has given you a, a high priest. You've been given a great officer in Jesus Christ. His sacrifice is perfect. Unlike the sacrifices of bulls and goats and calves, Jesus' sacrifice truly can propitiate. He is the one who has given oil for our lamps. That is the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Remember Jesus' parable of the ten virgins and the oil. What is the oil? The oil is the presence and spirit of God. You, you see this in the Old Testament. Why did they often anoint with oil the kings and the priests and the, and the prophets? Well, because it signified the Spirit of God. And so now you don't have a, a, a mere sinner going into the holy room and pouring literal oil into the lamp that's by the showbread table. Now we have Christ, the great high priest, giving us his oil, his spirit, so that we might illumine the world. The priest in the Old Testament 
would take care of the showbread. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, I am the bread that is on that table. The showbread was what? It was to remind the people of God of God's faithful provision for him, for them, both in the manna and subsequently. And now Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. He said, you, you know, you eat, speaking to the crowds, the multitudes, he says, you, you follow me because I feed you. You eat this bread. But he said, don't, don't work for the bread that, that you consume and then expel. But work for the bread that leads to eternal life, that is feed on Jesus Christ. And then just as the priests, the high priests would offer the incense for the prayers, what do we have? We have a priest who is sitting at the right hand of God making intercession for us. We also know that the veil is torn now. So what do we say by application, give me, let me give you a few applications from this first point. Number one, we know that you don't need an earthly priest anymore. Jesus has died and he has made full atonement and he is the mediator between you and God. You don't need a sinner to be a mediator to get you closer to God. There are those who do believe that. They need, they believe that they need a human priest, a mere human priest, Jesus is human, a mere human priest in order to get closer to God. And often, many of those same churches and denominations perpetuate that. It's good for business. Uh, you know, got big buildings to pay for in Rome, right? And, and so they, they send out these people and they say, well, you, you know, if you... You know, pay, pay for an indulgence. Our priests will offer you, you know, absolution. And, and people are like, okay, great. But the author of Hebrews is saying we, we have a high priest. Some people think they cannot be forgiven unless an earthly priest tell them. Some believe that they need that earthly priest to come so that they can die. Uh, that they, they cannot die without a priest coming into their room. Our priest is the son of God, congregation. Our priest is not a mere ordinary sinner. Our priest is the God-man, the one without any sin. Our high priest was conceived by the Spirit of God in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Our priest is without any sin. Our priest sits at God's right hand. Our priest was raised from the dead to die no more. Our priest is always heard when he prays to the Father. The author here is saying, Therefore, hold fast your confession by holding fast to Jesus by faith as your priest. Now, let us move to the second point here. We have a great high priest. Number two, you need to know that Jesus, your high priest, is sympathetic towards you. Look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Now, why does the author of Hebrews say this? 
Why does he bring up this thought about the high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses? I think because we've all experienced this, haven't we? Maybe you feel the need to talk to somebody. And as you think about, well, who can I talk to about this? You, you go through your mind and you think, well, no, not that person. Why? Because I'm not sure I would get the best audience with them. Maybe their personality is, often tends to be dismissive, or they shoot from the hip, or they speak first and ask questions later. Or maybe you go to them and all you're going to get is an engineering solution. What you really want is somebody to bear the weight of the problem with you for a moment. You're not looking necessarily for an answer. You're just looking for strength to deal with the problem. And what the author of Hebrews is saying here is the Son of God, being the Son of God, doesn't make Jesus any less sympathetic. Actually, it's the reverse. It makes Jesus more humane, that he's without sin. Rather than less humane. Sin makes you less humane, less sympathetic. It's the sinlessness of Jesus that makes him all the more sympathetic to you and to me. I mean, think about it. It makes sense. C.S. Lewis, you know, made the case for this. That because Christ is without sin, he knows the power of sin more than we do. Because we, being sinners, give in to temptation. And therefore, when we give in to temptation, we no longer feel the strength of the temptation. We no longer feel the resistance, the friction that comes with temptation. But Jesus, who has never given in to sin, he feels the weight of it all the more in his human nature. <coughs> I think, too, it's important because, again, there are churches out there, especially those that have the weird icons, that make Jesus seem austere. You look at the icons and you, you see this distant, severe Jesus, supposedly. And he's far off. He's up there and he's doing something like this, you know. Heaven, hell, you know. And there is something to be said that Christ being the final arbiter and judge of each and every one of us. But what we're getting here in the book of Hebrews is a different picture than often what is portrayed with paint and ink. We're getting a picture of one who says, come unto me. Not this, but this. Not this, but this. Who's saying, come unto me, ye who are weary, ye who are heavy laden, ye who are worn out, burdened by sin, the consequences of sin, the fallenness of our humanity, all its awful uh, evil problems that infect the whole world. I am a sympathetic high priest, says Jesus. And whoever comes unto me, I will in no way cast out. That if we but confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe on him with our heart, the Bible says we shall be saved. John Calvin, in his commentary, notes that angels have never been harassed with cares that we experience. 
Angels do not understand empathetically our sorrows, our fears, our dread of death. But Jesus Christ has known it all. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed to the Father if there be any other way for the salvation of God's people to be accomplished rather than the cross. Let this cup pass, but he prayed, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus Christ would have you come to him by faith and believe on him and trust in him. Not try to work for him to get to him, but to believe on him who already has worked for you, that you then, having believed, might go out in thankful acknowledgement. Why is it that some denominations, and I'm not, you know, being overly critical here, one denomination has even written a book, Why They Can't Sing. You can Google it sometime. Why, why is that? Why, why? Because they, they don't have the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't know Jesus as a sympathetic high priest. In fact, they think they'll do their best, and they're still going to spend thousands of years, possibly, in purgatory, paying for the rest of their sins. What's there to sing about? Oh, for 10,000 years in purgatory? No, Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection are sufficient for you to go immediately into his presence. When you believe on Jesus Christ by faith, you have in him as a high priest a complete and perfect atoning sacrifice and the Father asks no more questions. The veil has been torn, and anybody with Christ can go in to the Holy of Holies. If you are an Old Testament believer, you dare not go near that place. But now Jesus has come, and we, united to him by faith, go into that place here. And that's leading me to my third point here. We are therefore exhorted in verse 16 to draw near to him. You have a great high priest. This high priest, number two, is sympathetic. And then finally in verse 16, Therefore, because you have a great high priest and he is sympathetic, you are to draw near to him. Look at verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence. We are to go to him. We are to seek him. We are to go to him by faith. Notice here it says, let us draw near with confidence. With confidence. What is this confidence? Why can you have confidence? Some people say that's, that's fiction. That's legal fiction. How can you have confidence? You're a sinner. You can't have confidence. There are denominations that tell their people they cannot have confidence of their salvation. The author of Hebrews is saying, no, you can have confidence. If you truly believe in Jesus Christ, draw near with confidence 
to the throne of judgment, right? No. The throne of grace. Draw near with confidence. I want to speak to these thoughts here. One, you go with confidence. You draw near with confidence. Two, you do so to receive grace. With confidence. What does that mean? Well, it means you go boldly. And yet you go humbly. I remember hearing an illustration that um, this preacher had a friend who worked at the White House and he was able, uh, and there was a great crowd and, and uh, you, you, you couldn't go in unless you had a, a badge to go in. And he got separated from his friend um, who had the badge to get in. And he's like, whoa, 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 wait, I'm with him, I'm with him. And the friend turns around, yes, he's with me. They're like, all right, come on in. And so it is with Christ. Because we have Jesus Christ, we can go, we can go boldly to the throne of grace in prayer. We can go boldly to our Father, even though we know we are still sinners. We still do wicked stuff every day and think bad things and we get intemperate and we have all these lusts and we, we break all of God's commandments. We have this idolatry in our life and, and, and you can just go through all the Ten Commandments and you think, what confidence do you have? What right do you have to go to this holy God and petition him or even come into his presence? Well, it's Christ. I, I have Christ and therefore I can go. He is the one with the badge. He's the one with the righteousness, and he has given that righteousness to us. So we go with boldness, but yet also with humility. Not with self-righteousness, but with humility we go in. John Calvin said that the throne of God is now adorned with grace. It is not mere naked majesty that would cause only dread. But now it is a throne of grace, says the author. That is, we, we go and it is, remember Martin Luther, the reason he hated the righteousness of God because all he could think of when he heard that phrase was that God is righteous and he was not. What he, what he was failing to realize until he grasped it in the gospel was that the righteousness of God is, is what is freely being offered to us by his grace. Uh, and, and Calvin is making a similar point here, that the throne of God that is spoken of here in verse 16 is not just a, God, a, a throne of judgment, a throne of majesty and righteousness whereby we are condemned, but rather it is now a throne of grace because of the work of Jesus Christ. We come with confidence and boldness to Jesus Christ. And this is the great rediscovery of the Protestant Reformation. It was the rediscovery of the gospel. Is the rediscovery that Jesus Christ and his free offer of salvation liberates people to come boldly to him. And, and so if you are someone who has no assurance of your salvation, who maybe even thinks that they're going to have to pay for their way into glory somehow themselves, maybe through some kind of future purification by fire or something like that, listen to this good news you can believe, the Bible says, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you can believe that the moment you die, your soul goes to be with the Lord in heaven. You see, if you believe that there is still something still yet required of you 
after you die in order to come into the presence of God? What does that say about the atoning work of Jesus? What are you saying by consequence? What you're saying by consequence is Jesus' death wasn't enough. Jesus' work as a high priest was insufficient. That's what you're saying. If I have to spend 10,000 years in purgatory to finish the work that Jesus began on the cross, what we're saying is that Jesus' work on the cross didn't do it all. Now, why would you sing about that? We sing with joy because we know by God's grace that when we die, we shall be present with the Lord. Jesus has done it all. I couldn't, if you gave me 100,000 years, I couldn't pay for the rest of my sin. If you gave me a million years, two million years, 10 million years, my sin is infinite against God. Edward said, even one sin against an infinite God is infinite sin. You cannot begin to pay for that yourself. Don't even try. Your works are nothing to God in terms of gaining you entrance to the throne of grace. You merit nothing. It is all of Jesus Christ. This is why we, we make much of Jesus Christ. It's because he is everything to us. Without Jesus Christ, there's no entrance to this throne of grace. There's no assurance of salvation if it depends somewhat on, on my faithfulness. Then I have, I have no reason to be assured of anything. There are denominations, some of which come knocking on your door, and they will use this. I have heard them say it from their own lips. You do your best, Jesus makes up the rest. Again, it's the same problem. That will not allow you to have confidence to draw near to God. If you do your best and Jesus makes up the rest. It must be all of Christ. You know, no engineer builds half a bridge and says, okay, now you jump to the other side. Or you do your best Dukes of Hazard impersonation and you try and fly. I built halfway across. Now you do the rest. Okay, he's not going to last very long, is he? As an engineer. Well, how much more when it's things eternal? It is all of Christ. And so we need to forget these various groups that have a lack of assurance built into their theology. I, I am persuaded some of them build it in there intentionally for business sake. Uh, because, you know, if you can make men dependent upon you as an earthly mediator, then it's good for you. No, the Protestants have always said that Jesus is our priest, and we have no priesthood except the priesthood of all believers in Jesus Christ. I am not a priest, boys and girls. I am not offering a, an atoning sacrifice. I am not a mediator to God. Your mediator to God is Jesus. My job as a minister of the gospel is to tell you, go to Jesus. Don't come to me. I can't forgive you of any sin. I can't atone for any of your sins. But I can tell you where you can find that atonement today. And it is found only in Jesus Christ. And so I say to all of you, go to Jesus. Confess your sins to Jesus. <laughs> Repent of your sins before Christ. 
and go boldly, the Bible says. I want you to appreciate that adverb for a moment. That it's telling you to go boldly. We get pictures of that in the gospel, don't we? You think of the Syrophoenician woman with the demon-possessed child? She was bold, wasn't she? She wasn't an Israelite. What right does she have to come and seek out Jesus? And yet, she goes to Jesus. Jesus doesn't give her an audience at first, and yet she keeps coming after him with boldness. The disciples are even wanting her to put her away and send her away. But she continues. Even when Jesus said you shouldn't give the children's bread crumbs, uh, bread to the dogs, she even then latches on with boldness and says, yes, Lord, but even the crumbs that fall from the master's table are eaten by the dogs. She was willing with boldness to go to Christ. You and I are called to have that same kind of boldness. We go with boldness not because we're righteous. We don't go like a Pharisee who says, I thank thee, God, that I'm not like other people. That's not our confidence. Our confidence is, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Thank you, God, for Jesus. And it's in his name I come. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. We thank you, Father, for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And pray, Lord, that the Spirit would help us to understand his great high priesthood. In Jesus' name we pray.